Um, if it's okay, if I begin, just to say a massive and genuine thank you to the congregation. It's been a wonderful six weeks. I can't believe, honestly, can't believe how quickly it has flown by. I was telling Ivor just now in the vestry how, how nervous I was uh, arriving here first and not knowing what was ahead of me. And uh, it's been a great blessing. And I do pray, as Ivor said, to carry on. And you have, you're not quite rid of me yet. So. With that in mind, let's turn back to God's Word and turn to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, and we can, we'll be looking at the first 13 verses um, of the chapter. Exodus 12, first 13 verses. Um, we can just perhaps look at uh, verses uh, 12 to 13 for just now. Uh, as our text for the whole passage. We're looking at the whole passage. Verses 12. Uh, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. I didn't listen very much through most of first to third year in school. Um, as I was reflecting, I got to about fourth and fifth year and realised I'd better start working. But I do remember a few things. And I remember one day in history, we were shown a video, must have been the second year, about palace life and how the princes and, and kings and royalty of, of the UK were treated in years gone by. And uh, one illustration sticks in mind um, of... The, the whipping boy is a term I still have to do. So when the prince, I'm sure some of us know this already, but when the prince was getting schooled, he was, of course, home taught in most situations, and he was being schooled and he was being taught and being educated on how to be a prince, but also on, on Latin, on maths. He had a, quite a large curriculum. But as this wee prince was learning and as he was seeking to expand his knowledge in the world, he of course got bored, became cheeky, like every other kid does. And every time this wee prince was cheeky and deserved punishment from his teacher, of course the teacher couldn't hit the prince, so instead this teacher walloped this poor boy beside him, who would have been his best friend, or a close, uh, a close friend. Um, and this went on, apparently, until the schooling was finished. So for how many years that lasted, it was the same guy they used all the time. So this poor soul, every time the prince or, or king, whatever he was, then played up, was um, punished on his behalf. It's a silly example, but it's a real example um, from our own history. And it's this constant theme of, of scapegoat, this constant theme of, of a replacement. This poor boy did nothing wrong, but yet he was punished, I'm sure quite often, for the transgressions of this other boy. Again and again we've spent several weeks looking at the plagues of Egypt and two weeks really, uh, last week and this week, God willing, looking at this final plague, the Passover, the, the, the final plague where God would come and strike down, of course, the firstborn of Egypt. And here we find in this section, God is instructing Moses and Aaron. 
the, the final instructions, if you like, the final time he talks to them before he visits the nation with this final plague. Here we have God speaking to them for the final time before he would visit Egypt, before he would come and finally free his people. And God, of course, in this chapter is filling Moses the Aaron in with all the stipulations about choosing the lamb, about how they would kill it, about what to do after they killed it, and then later on about the bread, about the ceremonies, about how even to leave their houses. And it's crucial for us to, to pause at this point in chapter 12, this first, these first 13 and 14 verses, and carefully see what God is revealing to us about himself in this small section. He shows us in a section his dealings with his people in, in Egypt, and also his dealings with people in Egypt reflect on his dealings with us tonight in Coatbridge. In these verses, we are privileged, incredibly privileged, to see something of a wonder of the true and eternal Lamb of God, we'll see as we look on later on. And in these verses, we see the first real clear indications of God preparing for his people a final, ultimate sacrifice. One whose blood was not just going to cover his people for a night, but whose blood would save his people from danger and death for eternity. Now don't panic, we've got five points tonight, I'm making the most of my final uh, time with you. It's short points, um, but it's important for us to really try and dig into this section and see what God is saying to us uh, through it, how it relates to the Hebrews, but also how it relates to us. So looking at the first uh, point, hopefully, it is a new start. A new start. My mother absolutely loves calendars. She absolutely adores using calendars. She's got, well, one calendar, to so say. One kind of master calendar in the kitchen that informs the rest of her plans and lists. Uh, as a younger boy, I would laugh at the calendar. I would kind of laugh at how she'd mark every single thing down carefully. She'd have the weekly bins, 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 milk, milk, milk. Then kind of family occasions, birthdays even to the small things which at the time weren't important, things like, you know, Donald leaves P5, goes to P6, and Donald goes to Nicholson Institute, and Donald has finished sixth year, and think, okay, mum, we, we, we all know this as a family. Looking back now, you see why she marked these things, important dates to the family, important dates to her. And as I've grown older and become a bit busier, I've noticed I also have a calendar now in the kitchen in the flat, a master calendar. I've been marking down important things. And this whole chapter opens up with this incredible instruction from God to Moses and Aaron in verse 2. This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. These Israelites, these Hebrews, God is telling them, you're going to have to tear up your current calendar, tear up your current timekeeping system, and you're going to start again right now. You're going to reorder your whole life 
reorder your whole existence, reorder everything you know, and start again fresh right now. They would now measure, they would now plan, they would now organise their whole lives based on the fact that God was going to rescue them. Their whole existence would now be structured around the timetable of a calendar that pointed to the fact that God would strike down Egypt, that God would take them out of Egypt, but not only them, their children's children, right to the Hebrews and the Jews of today, are still following the same calendar that God gave to his people right here in this chapter. This event would mark a whole new age, a whole new reality to the people of Israel, who would begin a whole new life. Like we said, there had been generations and generations of slavery. All they had known from grandchildren to grandparents and further back was constant, overwhelming slavery. And now they were going to come even to know God in a different way. They were about to leave all that behind. All these generations born to slavery were now to be set free. And this, of course, was not just a, a new calendar God was giving them, a new dating system. God was offering them through this a brand new life. A new, a fresh start. It's a, it's a monumental thought. But of course, isn't what we see in the New Testament the same but even greater? In this chapter here we see God saves his people and God gives people a new physical time frame, a new calendar, uh, if we like. But what does God give to his saved people in the New Testament? He offers us a new life, a new start, a whole new existence, a whole new reality, a whole new way to relate to him. We see it as, I won't eat the next sermons and the future sermons, but we see it as the people of Egypt, as the people of, of as the Hebrews leave Egypt and start their new life with God and as they travel into the desert, God relates to them and he shows himself to them in brand new ways. In the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke, on the mountain. In various ways God showed himself to his people. In the New Testament, God also shows himself to us in a new way. In a way we cannot even begin to imagine, as we'll see later on. God gives us a new life. God gives us a whole new for a whole new future. Um, Ephesians two is quite a long section, but it's worth sticking by and listening. Ephesians two, um, from verse one. Ephesians two. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we are by nature deserving of wrath. Verses we know so well. Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive of Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. We once followed the patterns 
the, the seasons of this world. We once followed like the calendar, the occasions, the highlights that those around us and those we love still follow. But God entered into our existence. He transformed us and he gave us a whole new time frame. He's lifted us from that and as Ephesians tells us, he's now seated us, placed us, as it were, beside Jesus in the heavenly realms. When God saves his people, he takes them and saves them out of their situation, out even of their time frame, out even of the reality they, they think they know, and he gives them a brand new start. For his people in Egypt, he gave them a fresh month, a fresh year, start again now. For us, he gives us a new life, start again now. The, the promise that he will journey with us every day of this new life. A wonderful thought, even the first few verses of this chapter. And this new calendar was followed on by the instruction of a perfect lamb, as we have in the next point. In this section, the instructions are clear about what this lamb uh, was to be like. This lamb had been found. All of Israel, all the people in Egypt, all the people of all the Hebrews in Egypt, had to find a lamb or to be in a house where a lamb uh, was there to cover them. Um, according to, it's not in scripture, but according to to the traditions, the number they agreed on was ten. But one lamb can cover about ten people in a house. More a push if you have to, but ten was the real maximum. No more than ten. Um, not in scripture, but it's an interesting thought that even today, um, in celebrations, the Jews won't really have any more than ten uh, members apart from their family visiting them during Passover. Either way, each household had to be covered by a lamb. Each household had to find a lamb, from oldest to youngest, from most able to most frail. Every member of the people of the, of the people of of, of um, Israel had to be covered by the Lamb. Not one of them could go without this covering. So much so that God instructs them quite carefully on how they had to share out uh, the Lamb, how they share out the various uh, parts of meat and everything. God even allows them to use a goat if they had to. Of all that, we have to clear from this point on, it was always a Lamb that was going to be used. They were stuck. They were in Egypt. They didn't have the options they would have later on. God is gracious, and God was gracious to them. Either way, they were to find a lamb if they could. This lamb, this creature, had to be one year old, uh, like in, in the prime of its life, uh, in the, the the young moments where, of course, we, we know these young lambs are, are sturdy, wee creatures, and they're full of life. They're full of, of excitement as much as a, an animal can be. When you see them in the field, they really are. They're, they're quite amazing to watch. This lamb had to have not a single problem, not a single blemish, nothing at all wrong with it. It had to be perfect in as much as they could see. It's important for us to realise that the, the real emphasis, the real strength being placed on this fact, this lamb, this creature had to be unblemished. It had to be perfect. The 
term perfect, termed unblemished, it gives us a sense of what's being got at here. But it's interesting, interesting to, to note the same word being used for this term to describe the, the perfection of the Lamb, the attitudes, is, is often more often used to describe a kind of moral perfection that God required of his people. It's quite often used the same term later on in Leviticus in the laws and the purity laws and God's instructions on how to purify yourselves and how a priest were to keep themselves pure and unblemished. And the same word is used just to emphasize the reality that God took this very seriously. As much as they could themselves physically attain and see and make sure this lamb had to be perfect. The best of the best. It had to be without blemish. As this lamb, of course, had a second function. First of all, it was going to be killed and its blood used on the households. But secondly, its second function, if you could say it's perhaps more important function, if we can say that with respect, this lamb, of course, is pointing forward to an actual unblemished, a, a real perfect lamb, which we'll see later on. A, a true perfect lamb of God, a true and final sacrifice. So here we have this wee lamb. The, the, the father's gone out and he's, he's, he's got a lamb. It's the best he could find and it's perfect, it looks great, it's healthy. He's taken it home. Sure, some here have knowledge of this when, or experience of it, I should say, especially in my childhood and not so long ago um, on our island. We, uh, the reality is, many people still do uh, do what is affectionately called home kills. Um, I wish I could catch your name for it, but home kills are, as they say on the, the label, it's when the crofter with a license uh, is allowed to, to butcher, uh, to kill and butcher his own, his own animals. Um, it's a bit grim, but it's quite amazing. I, I've been present and been active in, in a few of these situations, and there's, every time it's still quite distressing to watch the animal die, uh, to watch it be killed, and to watch it die. This lovely wee creature is there one minute, next minute is dead. I remember standing there one of the times and the reality just hit me. When it happens in front of you, it's something that's just unescapable. So for a second, picture with me the scene. The household are gathered together. You're, you're in a wee shack, probably at best. You've got the lamb. You're gathered together. You've been given the instructions by Moses and Aaron. You've heard what to do. You've kept it for 14 days. Kept it safe, kept it unblemished, and now the sun is starting to set. And the instruction is clear. At twilight, the whole of, of, of Israel, the whole camp, was to kill the lamb at the same point. In verse 6, take care of him until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Excuse me. But just as it's getting dark, just as it begins to, to, the sun begins to set in the sky, the time has come for them to kill this spotless lamb. The means by which God has promised them, against I'm sure their, 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 their thoughts and their intuition, thinking, what's a bit strange, but Moses said to do this, so let's do it. 
With that image still in our minds of, of this lamb being killed by this small Hebrew family, knowing and trusting God will protect them by their actions, will protect them by the blood of the lamb. With that image in our minds, let's also think of scripture like First Peter in chapter 1. Verses we know, but wonderful verses. First Peter chapter 1. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him for your faith and hope in God. And again in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, that we may serve the living God. In these verses, God is laying the foundation. He is laying the foundation for a work he will bring to completion, to ultimate completion, of course, in his son, Jesus. The blood of this lamb will cover the people of Israel for that one night. But God, in doing this, in, in showing this, in instructing his people of Israel to do this, they are foreshadowing in a real, real sense, in a physical way, the Lamb that was to come, the perfect, spotless Jesus who would cover his people not for one night, who would keep his people safe not for one night, who would keep away the wrath of God not for one night, but who would do so for eternity, who covers us right now if we trust in him. That brings us to the third point we see in verses 7 and verse 13. It jumps a little bit around here, but verse 7 and 13 offer the same message to us. It wasn't just that they had to kill the animal, God gives clear instruction what to do with the blood after they killed it. The blood had to be painted onto the sides and the top of the doorframe. A real visual uh, showing of what God was going to do. A real visual sign that in this house were people who believed what God said was true. Who were trusting in God and trusting in his message. They had trusted God, they had trusted his instructions... They had followed the simple fact that God said, if you do this, you will be safe. It wasn't enough for them to kill the lamb. They had to follow God's instructions. Keep the lamb, keep it safe, 14 days, kill it at twilight, then paint your door with the blood. Our lives should reflect our real transformation. It's good enough for us to say we're Christians, good enough to, for us to, to, to know we're Christians. But our lives should naturally reflect that. Of course, we know ourselves how slow and how steady our sanctification can be, how slow and steady we, we, we see ourselves being not even close to the, the Christian we, we wish we were. God's word assures us if we trust in him, if we love him, then he is slowly making us more and more like Christ. But our lives should be obvious. should be obvious to those who love us and those who know us that we love our Lord, that we are listened to his instruction. We have, trust, we have placed our trust 
in his instructions. We have placed our trust in his provision for us. That the lamb has been killed for us. That our, our inward walk should naturally show itself on the outside. In verse 13, we, we find connected to that incredible, incredible words of God. Look with me to verse 13. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Wording this carefully, wording this, this in, a, in a, a human way. For those inside the house, the blood on the door kept away from them the wrath of God. It quite literally passed over them. And if we love the Lord today, if you love the Lord today, when he looks at you, what does he see? When God looks at me, when God looks at you, what does he see in you and in us? Does he see my failure to love him? Does he see my weakness and my times of confusion, my times of doubt? Does he see my constant waywardness against him? He sees you as covered by the sacrifice of his son. We hear this so often, but it's so good for us to be reminded of it. Especially when we see in this passage, God setting the scene for what was to come at the completion of his plan. God sees us as covered by the sacrifice of the Lamb, of his Son. The blood shed for you and for me on the cross, that we stand before God if we love him, we stand before him clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. This image of Jesus having us wrapped up in a cloak of his righteousness, uh, as Spurgeon uses quite often in his sermon, that image of, of Jesus standing over us and kind of wrapping us up, keeping us safe in, 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 a, in a big garment that is his righteousness. When God sees that, we're hidden and we're covered by his perfect, completed work. When God sees us, when God sees you, he sees the finished work of his beloved son. When God sees you, he sees you as being clean and perfect. All, all the wrath has been removed away from you. The punishment that you and I rightly deserve has been covered. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Let us never grow tired of reading these things, of trying to delve deeper and deeper into these things, about thinking about the reality of the suffering of our Saviour to redeem and to save us. Let's never play down the reality of his suffering. It's a simple thought, but it's one it's worth considering, that if one sin against God merits an eternity in hell, if one sin against God merits an eternity of punishment, Jesus took on that punishment for all his people. That level of punishment, that level of hell, we cannot begin to understand. And praise God, if we're his, we never will have to begin or, or experience or ever understand it. <coughs> 
that we stand today as Christians with nothing, nothing else but the wonderful reality that just as God has said to his people in Egypt, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. He says to us that when I look on you, I see my son. When God looks on you, if you love him, if you're his, if you trust in him, when God looks on you, he doesn't see your failures or your misery or your, your, your miserable service, I should say. He doesn't see your, your constant desire and, and waywardness against him. If we love him, if we serve him, if we are his, when God looks on us, just as he looked on his people in Egypt, he passed over them. His wrath passed over them because of this symbol of the blood of the Lamb. Where Jesus' actions for us was more than a symbol, it had real effect. It had real power. Eternal, lasting power. And again, it's good for us to really cement that in our minds. When we're so tempted to rely on feelings and rely on how we feel, we don't feel like we're saved, we don't, we don't, we don't feel like a Christian, we feel so far away from God. It's good to remind ourselves of the reality of God's truth and God's promises. All this kind of tension then leads us to verse 8, down to verse 11, and our fourth point, a quick escape. So verses 8 down to verse 11, where it becomes kind of, with respect, kind of oddly specific. Don't uh, cook the meat in water, roast it. Don't uh, eat it raw. Don't leave anything to the morning. Tuck your, your, your coat, your cloak into your belt. Make sure your sandals, your shoes are tied tight. Make sure your staff's in your hand. You have quite specific instructions from God on how to prepare the lamb, how to eat it, and even how to dress. You might think well, on first reading, this section is a bit strange, kind of stuck in here. This wonderful image of the blood and the doors, and all of a sudden God's telling them to make sure that their, their shoes are tied tight and make sure their, their cloak is tucked in properly. What's happening here? And I won't steal the, the thunder away from next week and the week after's uh, sermon. But just to say that here we see a real sense of hurry. God is trying to make clear to them, when I come to rescue you, you're going to leave in a rush. When I come to rescue you, there's no time to hang around. We will be going together. I will lead you. You will follow me. We will leave this place. We will leave your place of, of slavery, your place of chains, and I will lead you out of Egypt. As we heard last week, decked in gold, decked in the gold of the oppressors, I will lead you out with no time to hang around. So much so, we're told, not to even put the yeast leaven in their bread. No time to allow their bread to, to prove, to rise. Just make a flap of bread. That's the kind of hurry you have to be in. You have to be in your house, the food well cooked, the posts to be painted. You have to be fully dressed, shoes on, your cloak tucked in your belt, ready to run the second I come and rescue you. Even have your staff in your hand. God is coming, he is coming to rescue you, and you have to be ready for this occasion. This is, this is no TV dinner or whatever the Hebrew equivalent was in the day. This was eating with a purpose. 
This was not a meal to fill their stomachs. This was a meal of celebration. A celebration of the end of their slavery. A celebration of the beginning of their new life of freedom. I think this kind of same sense of urgency is shown to us again and again in the New Testament. And the teachings of Jesus and his parables, this image to be ready that God will come as a thief in the night. The, the, the parable of the ten foolish uh, bridesmaids who weren't ready for the bridegroom to come back. And again and again, plenty of other examples we could look to. This idea of God saying to us, you have to be ready. Church, you have to be ready for my return. Now this does not mean we're looking at the news and trying to work out the numbers of Daniel to see when God's going to come and what date and what month, as some people do. That kind of readiness is foolish. We have to be ready in the sense that we have to know we stand before God. We have to be ready in the sense that we have to be working to God's glory, constantly working to God's glory, to share the gospel, to grow in our love and knowledge of him, to do all that with in our minds the sense that he is coming soon. He is coming to take us away. He is coming to rescue us. He is coming to lead us out. Our spotless lamb will return. He left as a saviour. He returns as a conquering king. To take us home and to judge the world. That brings us to the final point in in verse 12 where we see a final reminder and here in verse 12 we reach the, the final step before the last plague was to come for a final time a final time God says that he will come and he will do this and make no mistake let's look together verse 12 on that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Now there's some contention, some debate in the commentaries and, and discussion and various sermons on what God is meaning or what the text means. It says that God will, on the same night, um, bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Commentators are saying that this simply means that, you know, the plagues, as we said before, that the plagues, as God mocked the gods of Egypt through the plagues, God saying this final plague will mock completely all the gods combined. The gods couldn't save even the children of the people who worship them, therefore God will destroy their gods. Well, that makes sense. Other commentators, other commentators are saying that this verse in this verse 12, this segment in verse 12, this phrase in verse 12, that on the same night I will pass through Egypt. So the same night this final plague takes place on that same night, God will strike a blow to the gods of Egypt, bring judgment on them. The other commentators say this is something extra God did. That God did some sort of final act of judgment on the gods. Uh, perhaps a destruction of the idols, a destruction of the monuments, a destruction of some sorts of the gods. So as God was killing the firstborn of Egypt, at the same time God was destroying even the, the evidence of the other gods in the land. And this is somewhat backed up by, uh, to us in Numbers 
33 verse 4. Numbers 33 verse 4. It says, While, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord struck down, on their gods also the Lord executed judgment. These two things seem to happen, two seems to have happened at the same time. So whilst God was striking in the firstborn, in some way that scripture does not make clear to us, God also some sort of final destruction on the gods of Egypt. At least on their on their idols. It doesn't really matter, of course, what this really means to us in the sense it doesn't matter that we don't need to the details aren't important. What is important is that this verse 12, this wonderful verse 12, it shows us the true reality, the culmination of the power of God. And the last sentence, that final sentence of this segment, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. God uses Yahweh to describe himself in this segment. Quite literally, Yahweh, the closest we can get to it, of course, is saying that it means I am. But God is saying, I am the I am. In so many ways, God is so beyond description that he can only describe himself by using his own name. That when, you, when we think, how do we describe God? Who is God? We might think of his love, might think of his, his salvation, might think of his um, omnipresence, his, omnipotence, his, his um, knowledge, his love. His, his, and after a while, we find ourselves beginning to repeat ourselves. But God describes himself as, I am. And this verse here reflects back to when God, of course, first meets with Moses at the burning bush. God gives Moses this name. And Moses says, who do I say sent me? When I arrive to your people in Egypt and they say, who sent you? Who do I say? They won't believe me. God says, say to them, I am has sent you. This beautiful name of God, this personal name that God reveals to his people. In a small way, the very name of God here reveals to us his majesty, his wonder, his true, um, with respect, size. I'm going to use that word. Can you use that word? That word really makes sense for God. But God's a different reality to us completely. He is so other compared to us. And yet, and yet we see this majestic, sovereign God who rules the universe is here rescuing his people from the oppressors in Egypt. When we come, of course, to think about Jesus, we see this shown again in a more wonderful way. In Jesus, who was fully God, who was fully the I Am. In Jesus, who was there at the creation, the Son, who was there at the creation of all things. The Son, who was there and who all things were made through him and for him. Yet in Jesus we see fully God, but yet fully man. The I am dwelling in bodily form. Again and again we've been shown the majesty of God 
his sovereign power over all things. The fact that he is jealous with people. That there is nothing and no one who can stand up against the might of our God. Uh, we can attempt to word it, we can attempt to, to phrase things, and I promise you, 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 our words fall so short of describing even what we want to say in our mind, what Scripture is saying to us about God. In all the plagues, in the last few weeks, the last few chapters, we've seen God's dealings with Pharaoh, God's dealings with Egyptians, and God's dealings with his people. And the clear, repeated message is God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He's in charge. God is sovereign. God loves and cares for his people. Um, we can close with a poem I found that kind of describes in a nice simple way the, the majesty of God. A few verses. Before the first race was run, before you spoke into existence galaxies and a million suns, before the first battle was ever fought and won, you knew me. Before the first darkening of night, before the universe first blazed into light, before mortal man ever realized his plight, you knew me. Before the first babe cried, before the first man tried, before that man sinned and died, you knew me. Before I ever knew your name, before I ever understood your pain, before my sin appeared like a crimson stain, you knew me. Let's bow our heads now, a word of prayer. Our Lord God, we come before you this evening and we come before you in awe and majesty, Lord. We recognise that, that our thoughts and our words only go so far, but we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us, that although you are God, although you are Yahweh, although you are so undescribable, in many ways you have chosen to show yourself to us through your word. You have chosen to come down. Or you chose to come down. You chose to walk amongst your creatures. You chose sovereignly to use the power, Lord, that only you have to redeem a people for yourself, to save a people for your own glory, for your own possession. Lord, forgive me for anything I said that was incorrect. Lord, we thank you and give you praise. The power is not in the mere men, Lord, who stand here and attempt to share your word. The power is in you and in your living word. Lord, humble us as we come to read these things, as we come to think of these things. Lord, help us. Help us as a congregation, as individuals, to seek out the deep things of your word. To, really not, to not be afraid of digging into these things. To not be afraid of sharing with each other and questioning one another. And growing together as a body of Christ. Help us to come to sing our final item of praise. We do so heart to mind, full of joy for you. Help us as we uh, conclude this new day of this new week. Lord, help us to carry on this week, Lord, with our minds uh, set on you. Help us to begin this new week humbling ourselves and trusting we're going forward in the strength of you our sovereign God, the God who rescued his people out of Egypt, the God who has rescued us uh, out of our sin. Lord, we ask these things for precious name's sake. Amen. Let's conclude by singing to God's praise uh, the hymn, There is a Redeemer. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son.
precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Thank you, O oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving us your Spirit to the work on earth is done. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest upon you now and forevermore. Amen.